This podcast was recorded in December of 2020, but is unfortunately being released around the time of another mass shooting that occurred right in our backyard here in Colorado. In the era of mass killings in the United States, there is no good time to release a podcast on mass casualty incidents. Thank you to all the courageous first responders who go to work every day knowing that they could be a part of an active shooter MCI. In addition to all those impacted by loss or grief from a mass killing, our hearts go out to Officer Eric Talley, who gave the ultimate sacrifice on March 22nd, 2021, so that others may live. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Ross, I often feel underqualified to make this podcast, and I feel like today our guest is overqualified and maybe should even be a little embarrassed that he will now forever be associated with our podcast. Yeah, today we have Will Berry. So my name is Will Berry. I'm a lieutenant with the Denver Health Paramedic Division. I work at um, our Denver International Airport operation. I work in our quality assurance program. I help oversee our wellness program and our peer support team. I have a bachelor's in communications. I'm a part of our bike team, uh, our wildland team. I was a wilderness guide for a long time, and I'm a volunteer ski patroller. Ross and Will are about to do a deep dive on mass casualty incidents, or MCI. I would say that to listen to this podcast and get the most out of it, you already should have taken the ICS courses on incident command. It's going to be a very conversational and advanced topic. It's almost like hanging out with the lieutenant or captain who knows everything and can talk casually about it forever. Well, that's because that's exactly what happened. Thanks for coming on, Will. Um, yeah. So tell us what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about mass casualty incidents. Why is it important for you know your everyday paramedic to be proficient in these calls? Well, I think it's honestly kind of funny you use the word proficient because these calls are really complex. They're infrequent. They are high stakes for the patients involved typically, and we don't run them a lot. We don't practice them enough. And um, they're incredibly complicated for not only trauma systems, but also relationships between different first response agencies. And that's one of the reasons why I like them so much is all the different challenges that they pose. So it seems like when we go from you know, our average call, our everyday patient where we show up and we're taking care of one patient at a time, taking care of a mass casualty incident where you have a ton of patients, it seems like you have to make this, this switch from, from the mindset of taking care of a single patient to kind of managing an entire scene and an entire team. How do you, how do you adequately make that switch? You're absolutely right. So paramedics were, we're really good at taking care of one patient and what's right in front of us. And with these calls, it's not about the one patient, it's about the entire call and all the patients. There's a lot of different ways to, to tackle that. Um, one would be to the switch in your mind from, a, from managing a single patient to an entire call. That's like the crux of managing these incredibly dynamic scenes. So everyone has a, a little 
different way. And every type of EMS service has a little different way. A, a Firebase service is going to manage a call like this a little differently than a than a third service governmental agency or, or a private um, a private EMS agency. But ultimately, a lot of the time, it depends on that first paramedic on the scene recognizing what they're dealing with and then calling it out. And that sometimes is the hardest thing for those paramedics to do. What advice would you give to a, a paramedic with regards to that? Some advice that I give to people that I talk to about this is if you're touching a patient, you need to evaluate what you're doing. If you're hands-on with somebody, you are focused on the task at hand, which is usually providing patient care to one person instead of having a more global perspective and more situational awareness to what's happening all around you. So one thing I tell people to do is if you're taking care of a patient, you need to step back. If you're not able to stand stationary in one spot, you also need to evaluate what you're doing. Um, if you feel the need to be 10 places at once on one of these scenes, you need help and you need to signal whatever mechanism you have in your agency to get more help to you. The hardest part of the MCI is recognizing that you are in fact in an MCI. We hear that over and over and over again because it happens over and over and over again. A huge red flag should be feeling like you have to be in 10 places at once. If you are hands-on with a patient when you have this feeling, the hardest thing for you to do is going to be to recognize that you need to break contact with that patient, step back, look around, and make a call for help. It feels a little bit like abandonment, but if you don't do it, you're really abandoning all of the other patients on scene and delaying the opportunity to set up solid incident command. So that's recognizing an MCI. Let's talk about definitions, but before we do, I want to encourage you to think about the MCI the way Will does. If you feel like you are being pulled in many different directions and your mind can't stand still, stop, take a breath, look around, and ask yourself if you're in a mass casualty incident. You can always downgrade or cancel a call for help, and you should never feel scared to call an MCI or call for help. So it sounds like one of the most important things with regards to these is just frankly recognizing that it is a MCI or mass casualty incident. So let's start there. What constitutes as an MCI? Sure. So the textbook definition of a mass casualty incident is a number of patients that overwhelms the initial response to an incident. And honestly, I hate that definition because what's overwhelms, right? Uh, a rural system with one ALS ambulance in service is going to be overwhelmed by a completely different number of patients and acuity of patients than a busy urban system with 24 ambulances on. One ambulance can sometimes handle, you know, 10 or 11 green patients that are mostly patient refusals. And then you throw in one or two critical or peri-arrest patients into the mix. The, com the dynamics of that call just completely changed. So I personally, would throw out that definition if it were up to me, but it's not. I like to think about these calls in a little more nuanced way. You know, they, they have multiple patients. Sometimes they have complicated resources and circumstances involved. Sometimes they don't. If you're talking about a, a motor vehicle crash with a family involved 
and one car, that has different challenges than an active shooter with, with the, where the threat is still actively causing harm to more patients or a building collapse with people trapped in rubble, a structure fire with a lot of patients in jumping from balconies or being pulled from the fire by, by firefighters. So we have to have a more nuanced definition and a more nuanced approach to what, what these calls are. And then also what overwhelms us in the field logistically, let's say we have a bunch of patients that aren't critically injured, but there there's a rescue component. Maybe they're trapped in some form or fashion or they're, they're at a height or whatever. That's not going to overwhelm our trauma system. So for those in-hospital providers, they might hear about this call and they're like, well, yeah, there's 20 patients, but none of them were surgical. So th we really have to have a more nuanced discussion about these calls from all aspects, from the first response to how we triage, how we choose, how we transport these patients, um, how we alert our trauma facilities, and then what they do with the patients they receive. So it's not necessarily the patient count, but the amount of resources that it's going to take. You know, when you look at a lot of mass casualty incident protocols or policies around the country, a lot of them do hinge on a number of patients. A lot of them have this section about a level one is, you know, zero to 10 patients and a level two is 10 to 15. And what does that really mean? Are you putting, are these green patients? Can you put four of them in one ambulance and drive them to the hospital, non-emergent? Or are these all critical patients that require airway management and advanced procedures where you need like a one-to-one -one provider ratio with these patients? That's a completely different call and a completely different response from whatever system is going. Yeah. So if you take the example of you have, say, 11 pediatric green patients or non-acute patients, I mean, heck, maybe most of those can be transported by their parents to the hospital and one ambulance can adequately handle that and dispo most of them and transport four of them alone. But yet if you have three critical red patients, that's going to quickly overwhelm a single ambulance and involve a ton more resources. So I could see how the count is not going to really factor in. It's really the amount of resources that those particular patients are going to going to require. And not only that, to interrupt you, it's not just about the number of resources. It's also about specialty resources. So think about think about a situation like an active shooter is that requires a response unlike any other call type that we go on. It requires us to work with our law enforcement partners and our and our first response agency, like our fire department partners, in a way that we don't work with them on any other call. And so to just blanket all these calls as MCIs is it's short-sighted. And I think that from a leadership perspective and like a policy making standpoint, it's it's just the wrong thing to do. So it seems like these are extremely dynamic situations that can constantly be changing and ever evolving and may start out as something that seems simple, like you can handle yourself, but then quickly you realize there are more resources than your single ambulance can provide that are needed in that situation. And we've talked about this before. You've mentioned that these are non-linear situations. What, what exactly do you mean by that? 
certain situations and incidents evolve linearly. And, and you know, what I really mean by that is take a, a good example is a, is a fire, like a, even a structure fire. With a certain amount of fuel and a certain amount of oxygen, the fire that starts in X location is going to spread at a certain rate, consume a certain amount of fuel at a certain rate, and it's going to take a certain amount of suppressant to put it out. That has a relatively predictable arc to it and can be managed with a relatively predictable amount of resources. Imagine if while you were spraying water on that fire, it just poof went out and started back up in another spot. Some of these call types require this whole different set of problem solving ability. Think about uh, an active shooter again, for an example, because that, that's probably one of the most dynamic types of these calls we could go on. You have somebody, you have a person that's committing acts of violence in a what feels like random and unpredictable way. And then, so they're not gonna, it's not gonna be, you know, exponential. They kill one person, then they kill two, then they kill four, then they kill eight, right? It's something happens over here and then maybe there was like a diversion created over here. Maybe there's a second shooter. Maybe there's a, a device that goes off like a like an improvised explosive device. The These situations require us to think very critically think in the moment, stay on our toes. The response can't be canned. Places that we feel like are safe can become unsafe and vice versa. The closest thing we get, I think, when it comes to an MCI to a really linear event is a car crash. We know the car crashed. We know the crash is over. And we know there were, let's say, five people in that car. The stimulus has ended. We have a number of patients from that stimulus, and we have to re react accordingly, right? We can somewhat predict what's going to happen. But when we start thinking about these things non-linearly, we have to think about, we have to think outside the box in terms of how we respond to them and how we train for them and what we prepare ourselves for. Like as a paramedic, are you prepared to, for example, breach a door? That's something that, you know, unless you work in a fire-based EMS system, you've probably never thought about how you're going to breach a door. But if you're in an active shooter situation and you are in an unsafe location or you know there's a bunch of patients in a certain room and you can't get to them, you might be faced with I need to figure out how to breach this door. And uh, an ultra linear way to look at this is like, well, you're, you're not trained to do that. You don't have the right skill set to do that. We need to call in the people that are trained to do that. We need to bring in, whether it's our, our tactical response team, like our SWAT team or, or our fire department with breaching tools. And it's like, we don't have time for that. These people are dying. We need to, we need to get access to them now and we need to figure out how to do it. And so we have to shift how we, we can't just dump resources on these things and expect it to just kind of smother it because it might not work. And so with that being said, it seems like we can't just write down on paper an algorithm for every single scenario. It's too nuanced. They're too specific to that scenario. It seems like you have to be flexible in the moment 
to respond to what you're seeing on the ground. And so with regards to that, what are some strategies that we can use to manage these non-linear situations or the nature of these non-linear incidents? I think paramedics are uniquely skilled to think this way and tackle this way because to a degree, this is kind of how pathology works within the body, right? Um, we We have something in the body uh, actively damaging it. And until we gain more data and more information, sometimes we're kind of reacting to what we see, like, okay, their O2 sets low, so let's give them oxygen. The skill set and the the problem-solving skills we develop as paramedics, I think can actually be really well-suited to tackle these situations. It's a matter of um, fostering the right leadership structure and the right response structure that not only not only help that problem solving ability thrive but also help it work together with others trying to do the exact same thing because we're used to running one call with one patient and now we all have to come together and work towards a more common objective so how do we train for that so one, we need to train more, just volume of, of thoughtful training. It's not just about going through the motions, but right practice. We have to get away from a very algorithmic form of problem solving. You know, this box leads to this box. So this number of patients leads to this many ambulances and this many engine companies or, or whatever. Um, we have to have object. I think we have to have objectives that are very clear for our people on the ground, right? Like we want to do the greatest good for the greatest number of patients that we can while also being safe. We, we want to communicate really well over the radio, or we want to communicate very directly in very closed loop over the radio. So calling each other on the phone, texting each other on these scenes that does the call a disservice because Ross, if you and I are on one of these calls and we're texting each other about where we are on the scene, no one else is getting the privilege of knowing where we are. And so if the situation changes and it becomes unsafe or some patients are found in another part of the scene and they need people to go there, the whole response needs to have good situational awareness and a good operational picture of what's happening on that scene. Good, clear objectives, train more than we do, talk on the radio, use language, especially landmarks that everyone can understand. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a call like this and people say, we're on the other side of this building. It's like, well, What's the other side? <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to me. One, is a, this a two-dimensional drawing? Like, what's the other <laughs> side, you know? So sometimes it's north, south, east, west. That, I think, is great. It gives everyone, everyone is going to know north, south, east, what, east, west. If some places like fire departments or law enforcement agencies will, will number or letter sides of a building like Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta, or 1234. That's great if everyone speaks the same language. But for example, here in Denver, the SWAT team uses 1234 and the fire department uses Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta. 
So if a SWAT team member tells me, come to the two side, and the, and the firefighter says, no, we need the medics on the Bravo side. Well, they're both saying the same thing, but if I didn't know that, I, would, I wouldn't know where to go. I think it gets said a lot in medicine, the closed loop communication, you know, it's an ACLS test question every time, but it really is true. If I say, Ross, how you doing over there? If I say that to you over the radio, well, you're a paramedic that wants to appear as though you got everything handled. You're probably going to be like, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good, <laughs> you know? Ross, how many patients do you have and what are their triage categories? You come back to me. I have two reds, three yellows, four greens. Okay, either I am sending you the, this complement of resources or what resources do you need? If we centralize all the decision-making on one of these calls with one person, we're wasting time. So... When I think about this concept of decentralized command, an incident that comes to mind is the Las Vegas shooting. Disclaimer, active shooter, so it's already really complex just by the nature of it being an active shooter. It's also the active shooter with the highest number of injuries and fatalities in the history of our country, so I'm sensitive to that. It's really difficult call to respond to. As it relates to decentralized command, the first responding battalion chief from the fire department asked his, as I understand it, he asked his responding resources to stage until he could get to the command post. Now, what fueled that decision is probably the safety of all of his crews, which I'm really sensitive to. You have a man shooting what felt like an automatic rifle from an elevated position. That's incredibly scary for your people. However, you also have citizens actively dying and everyone's looking to you to help them and do something. So waiting until you can get to the command post to try to wrap your mind around what's going on, you're already behind the eight ball because you're not going to wrap your mind around this incident. The scale and breadth of what was happening is not going to be understood by one person in a command post. And they're going to be so saturated with tasks as soon as you enter that scene, it's you're already behind the eight ball. You have to be able to empower your people and your responders to make good decisions on their own that are for the greater good of their safety and the patients. That's decentralized command in a nutshell. I'm going to train you to a really high standard and I'm gonna empower you with clear objectives. Go here, but do not go there. It is not safe if you go there. We're gonna train on rescue task force and then we're gonna form a rescue task force and I don't have to take the time to explain to you that that's two medical responders and three law enforcement officers in our system. Like that should just be understood from the training. I need to trust you when you tell me you need something or you're gonna go somewhere. I need to trust you that you're making a good decision based on what you see right in front of you, which is always gonna be some of the best information you can have is what you're 
your providers on the ground are seeing in front of them. Now, you also may have information that benefits them that something's not safe. And yeah, we're going to we're going to share this information back and forth. And again, that comes back to clear radio communication, closed loop communication. But I'm going to empower and trust you to make good decisions on the ground. And you're not going to wait for me to tell you what to do. Another concept that I think about a lot with these incidents is what's known as PACE planning, P-A-C-E. And that's a that's a military acronym, but PACE stands for primary, alternate, contingent, and emergency. And so this kind of gets back to our our nonlinear incident. Like we can't just have plan A and then when plan A fails, we do plan A harder. We can't do that. So we have our primary plan. Okay, we're gonna go in the store and when we encounter patients, we're gonna do some bleeding control and we're gonna take them out the door we came in. Our alternate plan is we might go out this other door. Our contingency is we hunker down in a room until law enforcement can make it safe. And our emergency plan is we break out a window and we take these patients out a window. And so thinking that way and having, that leads us to things like, well, really? I might have to break a window to get my patient out of this school shooting? I don't know how to break a window. How would I break a window? And so it leads us to think about all of these things that we might have to be prepared to do. And that's back to where I think paramedics can be uniquely kind of gifted at this sometimes because how often are we taking care of a patient and they throw us a curveball and all of a sudden we're like, okay, now I'm managing an airway. I didn't think I was going to be doing that right now, but here we go. Yeah, and I think we talk about that a lot with managing airway, right? We've talked in previous podcasts about having plan A through Z when you start that airway. You start expecting it to be simple. I'm going to direct laryngoscopy and intubate this person, but you need to be prepared for vomit. You need to be prepared for their super anterior and you can't get a visual of the vocal cords. You need to be prepared if you can't intubate and you can't ventilate, what are you going to do next? And we talk a lot about having plans A through Z before you even start that intubation attempt so that you don't have to panic and try to think about your next step because you've already thought about it ahead of time. And it seems like that's a very similar thought process to these scenes. We just need to, instead of it being a single patient or a single procedure that we're doing, we need to think about it with regards to the entire scene and how we're going to get in and get out and take care of people. Absolutely. And I think where, where we sometimes fail to take it that next step is we think, um, which you're absolutely right. We think along those lines of, I, I exercise this, this problem solving ability when I do an airway. So I'm good to go. It's like, well, no, we need to think about it and re- how it relates to a call or a complicated scene because it affects what we bring with us. It affects, for, for example, when you work your ambulance shift, do you keep a coat with you? You know? Because you could end up on a call any shift where you're outside for the whole day. So do you keep a coat with you? Is that your emergency plan? Do you keep a granola bar with you? We don't, we don't always think about the, these sorts of things. And this is something that when I'm working out at, the, out at our airport, we, we try to stress to our people is 
If there is an incident on the airfield, no matter how big or small, you are not going to go home on time and you're going to be outside. You're probably going to be wet and cold. And so are you prepared for that? We kind of touched on clear intent and objectives, but the intent, what I mean by that is as the person who is looked to by the responders as the one managing this incident, what is my intent? So for example, when we were responding to a lot of uh, civil unrest this year, those situations could be incredibly dynamic. They weren't necessarily mass casualty incidents, but you have to you have to approach them this way. And so, you know, another reason why I hate that definition is because we weren't overwhelmed when we were responding to the civil unrest, but we were tapping into a different set of problem solving than on your run of the mill 911 call. Cuz we had people lighting fires on this block and then throwing rocks over here. And it's like, hey, th we have this patient that got hit in the head with a rock. They're totally appropriate to go to this level four trauma center down the street. But guess what? They just lit a dumpster on fire in the middle of that street. So we're not gonna go to that hospital. So when I, back to what I mean by intent is as the one managing this incident or being charged with kind of being in the lead of it, I wanna be very clear with our people. What is my intent? Well, my intent is for us to, my intent for you guys is to take care of the patients that arise from this event. And if you don't feel safe, you walk away. Um, and I want you to transport them to the closest hospital that's appropriate, regardless of trauma designation, because it's too dangerous, for example. So then they might be met with a situation that completely breaks the mold. But when they, when they're, when what is in front of them doesn't fit into their algorithm, they can come back to, well, what's my objective? My objective is to take care of as many patients as I want. And I know Will up in the command post wants us to be as safe as possible. Well, I'm going to improvise right now and I'm going to make up plan Z and I'm going to, and then we're going to do that and we're just going to go with it. And then later when we discuss it, like, Hey guys, why did you in this situation do this? Well, this is what we saw on the ground and it wasn't safe. And so we made a decision based on what we thought we could do safely. And based on what you told us at the start of this. Awesome. That makes total sense now. And then lastly, most is another acronym mission, objective, strategy, and tactics. So this is kind of like a continuum. So Mission is like the widest part of the funnel. It's like, what's our overall mission? And with these calls, it's usually take the, take the best care of the most people we can. The mission kind of stays similar. What are our objectives? And there's a formula for how to write good objectives, but you know, our, an objective might be, we want all the critical trauma patients off of this scene in less than an hour all the red trauma patients off the scene in less than an hour. So it's, it's measurable. Um, it, it has a time frame to it. Um, it's, it's pretty clear. Our strategy might be, well, we're going to deploy two paramedics to the north end of this incident and two paramedics to the south end of this incident, and they're going to triage and let us know what they need. And then your actual tactics are, 
I'm putting a tourniquet on now. I'm using start triage. I'm using salt triage. When you're on the ground as a paramedic responding to one of these situations, you're probably in the strategy tactics realm all the time. When you're the one kind of charged with managing the entire scene, you should be in like mission objectives and maybe strategy land. And if you catch yourself down dealing with tactics, like putting a tourniquet on somebody, you need to reevaluate what you're doing and how you're leaning into your role. With that in mind, how do you, how do you balance managing the scene with the needs of patient care? When we talk about balancing operations and patient care, you need to be able to do some damage control, stop and fix interventions for people while also working towards those strategy, that strategy and objectives, right? So you go on a, on a, a train that derailed and you go to the first patient you see and you pour everything you have into trying to help them. You're not actually helping that scene. Are you communicating what, how many ambulances you need, how many patients you have? If you go to that patient, put a tourniquet on, go to the next patient, I think that that's a good balance of trying to do some of that those damage control interventions with also operating at the scene. Can you tell us what TCCC is? Yeah, so TCCC, TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care, and they've uh, evolved a couple other acronyms from there. But ultimately, it's the um, the trauma medical guidelines that have come out of the military that inform battlefield care, as well as um, a lot of it's been adopted for civilian trauma care. So these are incredibly chaotic situations, as we've alluded to throughout this talk, and they're specific to only that particular scenario with a ton of nuances and, and the need for flexibility. But that being said, are there any consistent best practices or rules you would recommend following no matter the scenario? Yeah, I think no matter where you work, what size agency you work for and what your capabilities are, I think first talk on the radio. In after action reviews of a lot of different situations, communication always comes up. So talk on the radio, speak clearly, speak calmly, and use good landmarks and references and closed loop communication. I think we need to use small calls to practice for larger ones. In my work, I've identified that our most typical call with multiple patients is around five patients, plus or minus one. Usually one of them is critical, which makes the call that much more complicated, at least one of them. And we usually utilize anywhere from like three to four ambulances. So Knowing that that is a pretty typical call for us when it comes to multiple patients, we should respond to that call in a way that allows us to practice for something bigger and worse. How can we use that call to to practice? What what sort of what sort of things are we going to do on that scene and skills are we going to utilize? Talking on the radio, like I mentioned, communicating clearly, talking specifically about ingress and egress it's really important. So how are we going to enter this scene and how are we going to get out of it? That sometimes is very simple, but 
if a road is blocked, if a structure is damaged, if the fire department has a lot of hose lines. For example, we had a really large structure fire here in Denver. It was a, a wood-framed apartment building that was still under construction. So it was, you know, essentially a giant bonfire, unfortunately. That building started on fire and became a multi-alarm structure fire response. I parked my vehicle like three blocks away because of fire trucks and hose lines. And so from my perspective in my role, I'm thinking where, how are we going to get ambulances in here? And I think that that comes back to your, the pace planning, Uh, you know, plan A might be, well, we drive down the street and plan B is if we can't, we ask the fire department to move their stuff. They're on a big fire. They're not going to move their stuff. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to run over it? Are we going to find a new way? Are we going to go down an alley? Do we know the city well enough to know, oh, there's another way in if I, if I take this alternate route? So just that example of ingress and egress, right? That's something we we try to preach to our our people well, which is when you get in the ambulance to go to the hospital, your first move should never be to put the ambulance in reverse, right? Like set yourself up to leave because that's what, whether you have a patient or not, you know, you're going to (laughs) leave. So when you go to any structure fire, large or small, park your ambulance in such a way where it's not going to get blocked in by fire apparatus. When you get to a scene and you find out, wow, the way I took was really bad. If someone would just come this other way, it would be a lot easier. Say it over the radio. Tell the other ambulances, you know, this street is blocked. If you come to this scene, you're going to need to come from this direction. So I think those are some things we can do on the small calls to practice for the large ones. Can you talk about this double funnel concept? It's a, it's a principle that that is pretty adaptable. So if you can picture, and I know this isn't really like a visual medium, but if you can picture like an incident, so whatever it is, a car crash, uh, whatever, you form a funnel with the big part of that funnel opening up to the incident. So any patient, any patient that may have been created from that incident come, they trickle through the funnel to the, to the small end. And at that point you can, you can triage them. You can do some, some treatments, whatever. And then you have a second funnel where the, the big end of that funnel opens up to where you have where you have all your patients and then the little end of that funnel opens up to where your ambulances are going to come to receive them. So uh, that way you're consolidating all your patients at a single point and then you have some accountability of ambulances aren't just swooping in and taking somebody and leaving uh, which in a really chaotic situation can be really common. So the funnel can be something you create. You can park your vehicles in a specific way where they funnel patients towards the middle. It could be natural barriers, right? Like let's say you're on a, there was a big bus crash in Seattle on an elevated highway and the elevated highway made a natural funnel because you can't, (laughs) you can't get off of it. So you know you're going to be able to kind of police all your patients to one area. Um, so that can be really helpful, the, the double funnel. And I think thinking about that on the small calls is, is helpful. Something that I think is really important is don't rely on a bunch of specialty stuff. You're in a really stressful and chaotic situation. The last thing you want to try to do is 
re-remember how to use this thing that you haven't touched since some training sometime in a calm situation. You know, some of the systems that have specialty mass casualty incident vehicles, you're trying to outrun pathology. By the time the vehicle gets there and gets set up, it's too late sometimes. We, we talk about a principle of equipment aggregation. So I need a bunch of blankets on this scene. Okay, cool. Every, every ambulance that comes, drop off all of your blankets. We need all of them and then leave. Same with backboards, same with IV supplies, same with, you know, you name it, oxygen masks. Specialty vehicles can have a place. I'm not saying they're all bad, but we can't, we can't rely on them. I think in regards to any aspect of these incidents, if you don't use it frequently, you will not use it during an intensely stressful situation you you won't. So one of the things that I preach the most is find the center of the bullseye with a with these calls. A good example is the Aurora theater shooting. And again, um, not to focus solely on uh, active shooter scenes, but due to their complexity, they they tend to highlight a lot of the good learning points. Responders to the Aurora Theater shooting described as they got close to the theater being met with patients that had gunshot wounds that were walking up to them. On any other day, you go on a shooting and you find the patient walking up to you. You're like, cool, drive me to the hospital, see you later. But the problem is, and, and the problem was in Aurora, that's not where the sickest patients were. So you basically end up with these ambulances like bouncing off the periphery instead of getting into where the epicenter of this, where was the stimulus of this event? Where was the explosion? Where was the gunman? Where was the the first, where, where's the car that's most critically damaged? That's where your sickest patients are going to be. And we have to... As, as responders to these calls, we have to keep searching until we find what I call the center of the bullseye. Sometimes it's not safe to get there. And if we recognize that, that's great. We can tell our partners, we need you to help make this safe, whether it's fire, active threat, whatever. But uh, the San Bernardino shooting is another great example where there were multiple gunshot wound patients. Um, and then once the the law enforcement officers made it to the the conference room, they realized this is like the epicenter of this event and we need help here. It seems like clear and complete communication is paramount in these situations. How do you keep everyone on the same page? I know I've said this multiple times already, but talk on the radio, give updates. There are several different acronyms that can help you remember a way to give an update, but I I tell our paramedics, you do it all the time. You give a handoff report in the ER. Think of a similar method for updating over the radio. Hey, we have three vehicles and a, and a transit bus involved in this accident. We have a total of one red patient, four green patients. We're okay with the resources we have right now. Just that update alone, everyone listening to the radio has a pretty good idea of what's happening. Um, it's simple and we hear about it a lot, but it's true. Use closed loop communication and repeat back directions you're given. It's a really simple thing, but these situations are really stressful. Hey, Ross, I need you to go to the north side of this building 
We have reports of multiple patients there. Okay, I'm gonna go to the north side of the building and look for multiple patients. Speak clearly and calmly over the radio. This is time and time again, if you listen to radio traffic from incidents like this, the tone by which you talk on the radio, it sets the tone for the entire call. And I know that it's the same principle as if I'm on a cardiac arrest, yelling and give me the epi, go get the epi out of the ambulance. Why isn't it in the kit? And um, set me up for a tube, hurry up. You know, I set a seven five, hurry up. And your compressions aren't, aren't good enough. We all have been in arrests like that and we know how that goes versus someone that's clear, concise, and calm. That helps so much in these calls. Uh, and then really practically, use good landmarks. It almost sounds too simple um, and like it may not apply to all calls, but it does. I, I've been on calls where it's a multi-vehicle accident and I can see the person I'm talking to on the radio and they can't find me. And it's it's not enough to say, hey, I'm, I'm by this blue car. And they're like, well, I see a bunch of wrecked cars. I see cars whizzing by. There's a parking lot over there with a bunch of cars. You, you know, like you gotta be, you have to use good landmarks. We had a 45 or 50 car pileup on our main road that leads to our airport. This is a good example because for this road, the road, it, it runs north-south and then it takes a 90 degree turn and goes east-west. So you can't say northbound or southbound because it doesn't apply. So we use inbound and outbound. So inbound goes to the airport, outbound comes away from the airport. Well, the road was so icy and literally occluded with cars. We were telling ambulances, go up to this exit and go opposing. So go outbound in the inbound lane. And that direction alone caused so much confusion. One ambulance went the wrong way. Two ambulances went the wrong way. The police weren't quite sure what we wanted shut down and what we wanted open. So those those landmarks can be, they can be huge. They can make a difference in a patient getting transported in a timely fashion or not. And I think that highlights when you're working with multiple agencies, the avoidance of using jargon that's specific to your agency because you don't know if that other agency is going to understand what you're talking about. You talked about the Bravo side versus the two side. Um, even when you're working within agencies within your own city. So the fire department and the police department are going to have different jargon than you use on your ambulance service. So I think avoiding that and using kind of clear, plain language that everybody can understand is super important as well. Yeah. Another thing that goes along with that is, you know, you, you have to start using different radio call signs. There seems to be like a mental hurdle to like pulling the trigger to doing this as if it's like saying, well, that means it's a really big call. And I don't think this is a really big call, but if I tell a, a neighboring jurisdiction, I need you to respond to this location, and when you get there, ask for the triage officer. They don't know. You might say Medic 12, you might say Ambulance 6, you might say EMS 32, you might say Chief 5, whatever. They don't, they don't know who those people are. To your point, you have to eliminate the jargon and use language that anyone can understand. And I, my point is sometimes those things are right under our nose and we don't think about it. And to your point, 
use those little calls to practice as if they were a big call because then you'll be prepared for the big call. Yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give to a young medic? Piss your pants and fake a seizure. The first moments of these calls always feel overwhelming because guess what? You're overwhelmed. You just are. You have more things that need to be done than you have people and resources to do them. So you just have to embrace that, roll with it, and ask for help. Get more people there. If you find yourself running around back and forth, you got your hands on this patient, and you're like, oh, I need to go take a blood pressure on this one, and then, oh, I've, my refusal form or my computer is over there, stop, take a step back, ask for help. You need to be managing the whole scene, not the one patient. What would you tell a young medic? Yeah, don't fuck great. it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might tell them that. It might not be helpful. Yeah. But <laughs> That's what someone is going to tell them. Yeah, it isn't uh, helpful. Yes. <laughs> Can you summarize this for us? If you had three take-homes you wanted pre-hospital professionals listening to this episode to take to their next shift on the job, their next big MCI call, what would be your three take-homes? The hardest thing to do on a call with multiple patients is recognize you're on a big call with multiple patients. That's consistently the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing about these calls is recognizing you're on a big call. Communication is consistently really hard for people to do on these calls, and it consistently shows up on after-action reviews about large-scale events. So practice it every day. Think about what you would say on the radio if a big call happened. You go on a minor car accident, think about it as though it's a big one. And what would your radio report sound like? Develop a, a system like you do with a handoff report in the emergency department for a critical trauma patient. Develop a system like, like that that you can remember all the time and you can employ if you have to communicate a, a size up of a scene that you're on. And then... Lastly, the concept of decentralized command is really important in these situations. You really have to empower people that are on the ground to make good decisions for the best interest of patients by themselves. They cannot rely on someone holding their hand and telling them what to do because the person inevitably charged with doing that withholding their hand is going to be overloaded. Again, these things don't, they don't escalate on a gentle curve, like a structure fire, like some, some chief level officers in the fire service that are used to being incident commanders on structure fires. They're used to this curve of, well, I only have, first, I only have an engine in a truck company and they're doing a lot of stuff and the fire's kind of growing. And then I get these other resources there and then I get more resources there and then I can call for even more resources and eventually we're going to get wrapped around it. If you try to take that approach to these calls, you're going to be test saturated instantaneously and you have to be able to empower your people to think critically, think independently and make good decisions that are aligned with what you would want them to do. Consistently, I think fire-based agencies, ironically, they don't devote enough resources to this. I was on a large auto accident with a tanker truck on fire, multiple fatalities in a shutdown interstate. And they had one medic unit, one ambulance crew, air quotes, doing medical. And they had umpteen resources 
fighting fire, trying to, they had access issues. They couldn't get their hose lines stretched on the interstate. They couldn't establish a water supply. All of those things are legitimate when you're trying to put out a tanker truck fire. But you also, why are we doing all of this in the first place? It's to try to save human life. Property comes second. So why are we devoting the least amount of resources to the human life part? And putting the maximum amount of resources in the property protection part. So that kind of like grinds my gears. And I was in a class. It was a unified command class for our region. So it had like law enforcement, EMS, and fire agencies from all over the front range. And we would do these big scenarios. And um, consistently, the fire agencies... We would draw these beautiful org charts with all these lines and span of control and all that. And they would devote this minimum amount of resources to the patient care part. And I'm I'm just thinking, like, it's not realistic. It's not realistic. It takes more than one guy. It takes more than one person to deal with 20 red patients. Like, you can't do that. Uh, it's not realistic. And I think... The reason it's important is because when we wait until the moment when we're staring at 20 red patients to realize I need more help, people are going to die. I listened to the radio traffic for a, uh, it was a Amtrak train like versus a minivan or, or maybe it was a train derailment. They kept telling responders to come to the like it was something so blatantly obvious it was like come to the other side of the tracks and it's like well whatever side you're standing on the other side is the other side like that and to get to the quote unquote other side you had to drive like miles down cross over and then drive miles back and so if you're saying we need all the ambulances on the other side of the train tracks well what I mean, that doesn't help us. You have to give your receiving facilities a heads up. You have to. They have to have time to try to prepare. In our system, we get fixated on this idea of a bed count. So we say, we've had this big thing. Uh, Hey, Denver Health, how many patients can you take? Hey, University Hospital, how many patients can you take? And Dr. Barrett's perspective as someone who's been on the receiving end of that phone call is... I don't know. What do you have? If it's, again, if it's Las Vegas, we're going to get a ton of patients no matter what. We're going to be improvising. If it's a minivan rolled over and you've got four surgical trauma patients and that's it, okay, sure, spread the love. Send two to this level one trauma center and two to this level one trauma center. But the best thing we can do is just give you guys a heads up this is what happened. This is what we're seeing right now. Expect it to change and grow. And mechanism you have to put mechanisms in place as a system to to alert in that fashion because that's the best information we're going to get. We don't know. I can't I I'm managing my piece. I have a bunch of patients in the field that need critical care or that you know they need trauma care you're managing a department you know 
you may be thinking, that's cool. You have three people shot. I've got a full waiting room and a full ICU and I don't know what we're going to do. So the same principles that apply to us in the field of like, well, what's overwhelmed? That doesn't really mean anything to me. It applies to you guys in, in the ED as well, right? And it, again, it just comes back to communication. Do we have the ability to alert you in such a fashion where we're truly on the same page about what we're up against, what we're going to be bringing you probably, what you need to do to prepare for it? Yeah, it's we talk a lot about creating that shared mental model. So, So we have an idea of exactly what's going on at your scene. And you have an idea of exactly what we are prepared to handle. And we create this shared model that we can that we can have together to accomplish the mission. What's the structure we need to have on scene to make sure that that's that things get done, that the scene's adequately managed, that we that we understand the amount of patients we have, we understand where the patients need to go, we understand the amount of ambulances that need to come in and go out, and the needs of the whole system. What what type of structure do you do you aim to put in place when you have something like this? To to poke at you a little bit, this is kind of sometimes people take that question and then they expand to try to force this into that linear box. It's like, well, we just need to fill this org chart and then everything will be, you know, good to go. But some key objectives from perspective of EMS, we're in charge of, we're ultimately in charge of triaging these patients. So how many patients do we have and what are, what's the severity of their injuries? Like that's ultimately triage in a nutshell, yeah, there's methods and algorithms and whatever, but how many patients do we have and what what is their severity? What do they need? What 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 resources do they need from an from an emergency department? We're going to provide some treatment for those patients on scene. We want to get them off scene quickly, but we can't instantly conjure up the amount of resources we need. So inevitably, we're going to provide some treatment, and it depends on the situation. That might be bleeding control. You know, we had a situation several years ago at one of our homeless shelters where there was a like mass food poisoning, and that looked like, you know, IVs and anti-emetics for like 60 people while we figured out how to get enough re- transport resources for them. And then that segues into transport. That's obviously a huge thing we own as an EMS agency. We have to get these people to definitive care. So we're going we're gonna to triage them, we're going to treat them, and we're going to transport them. I, I think that those are some of our key objectives on these calls. So in terms of structure, I think someone needs to own each one of those pieces – now, one person might be able to own multiple pieces, right? Like I might be able to treat and make transport decisions, right? So like I put a couple tourniquets on some patients and then as the ambulances come, I look and I say, that guy can wait. Um, this patient needs to go first. Uh, can you double load with that patient? You know, I'm kind of wearing two hats, so to speak. The bigger the scene gets, you need to start being able to hand those things off to other people, which takes some self-reflection to say, this is too much for me. I need some help. And there's a balance to be struck there because it gets into this concept I think about a lot called push versus pull. 
And they talk about this with like supply chain, like our system is incredibly pull driven. We're going to send this response on every call, no matter what it is, unless we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's the big one. And then we're going to rely on that one resource to get to the scene, assess it, and tell us what we need to send to pull resources towards it. The opposite of that is a heavy push system. So some like complicated structure fire responses are a heavy push system. So we have reports of fire in the top story of a high rise building. We're gonna send a lot of fire trucks to that. And if they get there and figure out, oh, this wasn't a big deal, no harm, no foul, but we're gonna push everything towards it. They can sort it out when they get there. There's pros and cons to both. One of the things that we face in EMS, no matter the structure of your system, you probably just don't have enough resources to push lots of resources towards that incident. And that's where I think it again aligns with some of our skill set as a paramedic, right? Where like we're doing an assessment. Instead of an assess instead of assessing a patient, we're assessing a situation and a scene. And what does this need? And how are we gonna treat this? And what's actually happening here? And is there a specific structure you would recommend with like triage officer, treatment officer, transport officer? Yeah, so I think um nationally adhering to NIMS incident command system is that's the national standard and that's what we should do to to ICS. I think where a lot of people fall short sometimes is they think ICS is a paint by numbers where it's like, well, I have to put red here and I have to put blue here. ICS is designed as a tool to help you manage whatever comes your way. And so we all speak the same language. And so I think we have to have someone at the top. There has to be an incident commander. There has to be a, a, someone in charge of triage. There has to be someone in charge of transport and there has to be someone in charge of treatment. Now we can get into the nuance within ICS of, is that a group? Is that a branch? Is that a whatever? It depends on the situation. And that's where you kind of have to be able to speak the language to um, apply the concept to whatever's happening in front of you. But you know, we're gonna triage, we're gonna treat, and we're gonna transport these patients. And the other thing that I think we need to take from ICS regularly is the concept of span of control. And in a nutshell, that says, I can't, I can't be responsible for only so many people or, or things, and then I'm overwhelmed. If I'm trying to manage this scene, in my role as a field EMS supervisor in a, in a city, and I have 15 ambulances come, and I'm just trying to do it all by myself, I can't do it. I need other people to help. I need to break that up in some way. It's not safe. It's not safe for the patients. It's going to provide delays in care. So there you have it, a deep dive over beers into MCIs. One final thing I would add for anyone who will ever possibly be part of an MCI is to always act like you are going to be reviewed in an after-action report. The need for more help is not a weakness. When you start getting that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach that you need more hands, call for more resources and make the call early. 
Don't be afraid to reach out to your superiors who may have been in similar situations before and can provide guidance on the path forward. 